I'll let you into a secret. Uh, when I write sermons, I don't always feel super spiritual, fired up, excited, and inspired. Uh, I know that God is always with me, uh, but like you, I don't always feel it. A lot of the time I do, but not always. Uh, when I sat down to write this sermon, I actually felt really tired. I was exhausted and, and uh, pretty stressed out. Uh, I don't feel like that now, uh, but I did when I wrote this. And that's probably a good thing, because it means that I'm coming at this from a perspective that I think will be much more helpful to all of us. Uh, because for many of us, when we hear uh, our theme today, next steps in service, we go, <sighs> and the reason we do that is we, because we think we're going to be asked to do more. And you might be thinking, well, I'm stressed out at work, I'm stressed out at home, I don't have time to stir my tea, let alone serve. So let me put your minds at rest. This is not going to be a drive for more volunteers. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to guilt trip you into doing more stuff. Because even if I could pressurize someone into doing uh, a bit more, whatever they did would be done begrudgingly. Work that is done begrudgingly is seldom done well, and uh, what's more, it often ends abruptly. Uh, when I was working for a church in central London, the offices were on four stories, and the office where I worked happened to be on the ground floor, and it was right next to the kitchen. And I noticed that a certain person kept leaving her dirty dishes uh, on the side in the kitchen. So I'd always wash them up because I'm so servant-hearted, <laughs> no, I would wash them up, but I wasn't servant-hearted. I, I, I did it begrudgingly. And uh, this person worked on the fourth floor. And one day I, I, I sent her an email. And I, I said, just to let you know, you've left your dirty bowl on the side in the kitchen. And she emailed me back saying, oh, be a star and wash it up for me. <laughs> so, so I emailed back, uh, why don't you be a star and clean up after yourself? <laughs> So when I was cleaning up after this person, it looked like an act of service. I may have convinced myself that it was an act of service, but really it wasn't. It was just self-righteous condescension. By the way, it's not wrong to challenge someone's behavior in love, uh, but that's not what I was doing in the, on that occasion, and I hope I've matured a bit since then. But the point is, I wouldn't want anyone to serve begrudgingly because ultimately nothing good comes from it. Uh, when we talk about next steps in service, it's not so much about what we do, but our attitude of heart. Are we servant-hearted? Service is not confined to the stuff we do on a Sunday morning or as part of some ministry that the church is involved with. Our servant-heartedness should be evident in every area of our lives. And we can be servant-hearted without being a doormat, without burning ourselves out, and without having low self-esteem. And we'll uh, look at all those things as we go through. Uh, but first, we need to be aware of the obstacles. There are two major obstacles to us being servant-hearted, selfishness and pride. Verse 3 begins, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit is another way of saying pride. 
It was selfishness and pride that led to Satan being cast out of heaven. Satan is a created being. He wasn't created evil. He used his free will to rebel against God. In other words, he became evil. In Isaiah 14, it says this about Satan. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And then Satan tempted humanity with the opportunity to be like God. Genesis 3.5, it's a familiar scene. Uh, Satan tempting Eve with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what Satan says. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Selfishness and pride brought Adam and Eve to the point where they thought they could usurp God and redefine good and evil for themselves. Selfishness and pride have afflicted humanity ever since. We see the same attitude in the world today. The world's attitude, we don't need God, or we can make our own gods and decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. It's not about what God wants, it's about what we want. That is the the prevailing attitude of the world. And selfishness comes so naturally to us uh, that often we fail to recognize it as a vice. In 15th century Europe, it was believed that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth. Uh, Copernicus observed, uh, among other things, that uh, the earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, it's the, the opposite. The earth and all the planets of our solar system uh, orbit the sun. But no one believed him. No one wanted to accept what he was saying, and he was persecuted as a result. In the same way, it's hard to convince people that the world does not revolve around them. This is especially so in our culture, which I think has to be the most individualistic culture of all time. This is the age of self. Every day we hear words like self-realization, self-advancement, self-actualization, self-determination, self-efficacy. We hear mantras like, whatever makes you happy. If it feels good, go for it. I saw a meme the other day. It said, if it feels good, it can't be bad. Really? Is that the kind of message you want to give to a hedonist or an adulterer or a serial killer? If it feels good, it can't be bad. Even truth is now considered to be subjective. Uh, My opinion has now become my truth. You would have heard people say, that's my truth. So one person could say, my truth is that open marriages are healthy. And another person might say, I believe that marriage partners should be faithful to one another. But if you've removed God from the equation as the ultimate giver of moral law, how do you arbitrate between those two views? You can't. I mean, you could do what's generally accepted by the culture, but that changes all the time. You see, we've become so selfish that we've turned ourselves into little gods who can pronounce moral judgments in our own favor. Perhaps the icon of our age is the selfie. 
Photos are now less about preserving memories and more about self-promotion. The average millennial will take 26,000 selfies in their lifetime. That's roughly one per day. Now there's probably a time and a place for selfies. I'm sure we've all taken selfies. Uh, what I'm saying is that we've become incredibly focused on ourselves. Uh, we, we, we think we're so important, amazing, and exciting that uh, our 2,000 Facebook friends are waiting with their device in their hand to see what we ate for dinner last night. They can't wait to see the post of our food. <laughs> I mean, my mother loves me enormously, and she likes to know uh, that I'm eating well and staying healthy, but even she doesn't want to see a photo of my dinner. We live in a very individualistic, self-promoting, even narcissistic culture. We live in a very selfish culture. And into this culture comes these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is massively countercultural. We have to reverse that inclination that says, look out for number one and start putting the interests of others ahead of our own. Now, at this point, I expect someone thinking, well, that sounds like a recipe for burnout. I can barely take care of myself, let alone anyone else. And if there's only a handful of people in the church that are looking out for the interests of others, then that group of people will probably burn out. But if the whole church family lives that way, it actually makes life a lot easier for everyone. And it shows the world that there is a different way, a better way, the way of Christ, the way of selflessness. And this all has to do with being more like Jesus. Verse 5 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what follows, verses 6 to 8, probably has its origins in some of the earliest Christian writings. This is most likely a very early Christian creed. And it says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. These verses beautifully sum up the heart of God and the mindset of Christ. Jesus said, didn't he, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I've talked about how this selfless, uh, servant-hearted mindset is alien to our culture, but let's remember that it's alien to every culture. It was alien to the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. It was alien to the pagan culture of the Roman world. Uh, humility or lowliness was despised. It was despised in Greco-Roman culture. It was seen as a flaw or a weakness, as it often is in our culture. The idea of someone wanting to volunteer to take on the role of a servant was ridiculous. Why would anyone do that? And Jesus turns this whole worldview on its head. The God of the universe became a servant. And if God, who created all things, can stoop to wash the dirt and the grime 
from the feet of a group of undeserving fishermen, tax collectors and zealots. What excuse have we got for not serving others when we have the opportunity to do so? And if that's not enough to convince us, let us remember Christ's ultimate act of service, which was to die for our sins on a cross. But still, I reckon there's someone thinking, this is all too much. I just don't have the capacity to do anything for anyone else. Or more likely, someone might be thinking, I don't have the capacity to do anything for anyone outside of my immediate family. Uh, because we're all, or a lot of us, are very busy with our families, aren't we? And if that's how you're feeling, a bit overwhelmed, time poor, low on energy, it could be that you're thinking of big, time-consuming acts of service. But if servanthood is a way of life, most of our acts of service will be very simple, everyday things. For example, have you ever gone into a toilet that was filthy? At the gym, or at your place of work, or wherever? Uh, Now let's say that the seat is nice and clean, but the toilet bowl is revolting. So you can use the toilet without risking your health, uh, but it really (laughs) looks a mess. What do you do in that situation? You have to say, well, I'll go and use another toilet. But let's say there's only one. This is the only one available, and you're desperate. So what do you do? Do you use the toilet and leave it as it is? Do you use the toilet and then clean it, but just in case someone comes in after you and thinks that you made that mess? Or do you, clean the, or do you use the toilet and clean it because you want the next person to have a better experience than you did? And you might say, well, that's a ridiculous example. Like I'm going to clean up someone's mess in the toilet. You might say, well, the cleaners are paid to do that. And that's true, but it doesn't help the next person who goes in. I mean, Jesus could have said, couldn't he? Like I'm going to clean their disgusting feet. We can find a servant to do that. Jesus could have said, like I'm going to die on a cross for that selfish, ungrateful lot. It's a really good job for us that the God of the universe is humble and servant-hearted. You see, it's quite easy to engage in um, uh, one big act of service every now and again and convince ourselves that we're servant-hearted. But actually, it's how we engage with life and the people around us on a daily basis uh, that reveals how willing we are to really put others first. You know, it's much easier to make servanthood a habit with the small things. Cleaning up after ourselves or cleaning up after others without begrudging it, without sending them a snotty email. Asking someone how they are before we launch into a monologue of the stuff that's going on in our life. Uh, taking the time to, uh, to listen to the people around us. Parking in such a way that the person parked next to us doesn't have to climb into their car from the driver's side. And a million other small things that show that we're actually thinking about other people. We're actually putting others first. Yes, there are all kinds of ways that we can serve in the church. But I wanted to to focus on the little things this morning. Because it's the little things that help us to develop the habit of servant-heartedness. So it becomes a permanent characteristic of our lives. 
And I know that the flourishing of our ministries depends not on pressuring people into doing the work, but on us becoming more servant-hearted collectively as a church. If we do this together, our ministries will flourish without burning people out, without pushing people to the limit, because the load will be spread evenly. And we'll be able to serve not begrudgingly, but joyfully. As it says in 2 Corinthians, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But I think there may still be an objection. There may still be an objection to us being servant-hearted. And it goes something like this. Isn't it good to have a bit of pride, self-esteem, self-respect? I mean, isn't there a danger in all this of us becoming self-deprecating doormats? Well, up to now, we've skipped over verses 1 and 2, and it's these verses that give us the source, the motivation, and the inspiration for our servant-heartedness. I mean, if you attempt to be lowly without keeping these verses in mind, then, yeah, you may well end up with low self-esteem, and that's not good for anyone. But verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul uses the word if a lot there, but he's assuming that we're on the same page. He's assuming that these things are true of us. It says, if any encouragement from being united with Christ... We are united with Christ. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, with Christ. Sorry. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that we are sons and daughters of the living God. So we are to be humble and servant-hearted without losing sight of who we are in Christ. We are to be humble and servant-hearted without losing sight of who we are in Christ. And then it says... If any comfort from his love, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Now that almost sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's true. And it's a, and a, a, such an important facet of the gospel, the good news. When you were at your very worst, Jesus loved you enough to die for you. You have infinite value in God's sight. Jesus loves you. And then it says, if any common sharing in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us to become more like Jesus. Jesus was tender-hearted and compassionate. The fact is, we want to be servants because we belong to Christ. We are united with Christ, and we are called to be like Christ, who made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. We're not being oppressed, subjugated, coerced, cajoled, badgered, or forced into servanthood. We are choosing servant-heartedness as a way of life, because that is the way of Christ. Is Christ weak? Is Christ weak? He who resolutely headed for Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. He who thought of others, even as he hung in agony upon the cross. You remember his words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our Lord said, my power is perfected in weakness. And the Apostle Paul said, that is why, for Christ's sake, 
I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying, when I'm weak, I'm more like Jesus. And he wants to be like Jesus. Choosing service over selfishness is not degrading, nor is it weak. The world might not always recognize it, but it takes tremendous strength. Not our own strength, but the strength that we draw from Jesus. So let's wrap this up. Our, our next step in service is not necessarily to take on uh, some new role or responsibility. Of course, there may well be people here who feel called to serve in the church in some new way. Uh, that's great. I'm not discouraging that. We need that. But what I'm saying is this. Rather than thinking of service as big, time-consuming things that we do, let us focus on being servant-hearted as a way of life. If we take the focus off of ourselves and redirect it towards Jesus and his kingdom and the people around us, then our lives and this church and our ministries will flourish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we we do have a a natural inclination to, to think of ourselves first. Uh, We can be quite self-centered creatures. We pray that you will help us to redirect our focus to you and your kingdom. We pray that we can be servant-hearted in every area of our lives, in all the millions of little things. That's the opportunities that we have to be servant-hearted. We pray that we won't waste them. We pray that we'll remember who we are in Christ and follow we want to follow your example Lord and we ask this in Jesus name Amen